Greetings, people of Earth. You have stumbled upon Voluntucky, the podcast that is all about creating a voluntarist world in Kentucky. And when I say Kentucky, I am referring to the geographic location, not the boundaries and territory of a particular set of thugs. Podcasts with a libertarian slash anarcho-capitalist perspective are already very different from other podcasts, but this one will be different even among them, because I am not here as a commercial for voluntarism. I am not here to change your mind or to convince you that voluntarism is the way to go. I am here to speak to those who already understand this. Welcome to episode six. Who the fuck is Matt Withrow? <laughs> Maybe it's time I address that topic of who this guy is that you're listening to. So I'm going to get into that today simply for the sake of satisfying the curiosity of listeners. I am under no illusion that the majority of people won't think of me as a nut job, and I'm okay with that. This show isn't for the majority of people. The opinions of those who don't like my point of view are already irrelevant to me. But for myself, I know that if I have listened to any person for a period of time, I begin to wonder what led them to believe the way they believe. So for my regular listeners who may be wondering those things about me, those are the questions I will be answering today. So hold on to your seats. It gets a little weird at times. (laughs) But before I get into my story, I, I want to address the drastically more important issue of Why should my story really even matter? I mean, it's fine to be curious, but if we're the logical creatures we claim to be, then the source shouldn't matter, should it? I mean, we all understand the logical fallacy of the ad hominem. But if it's a logical fallacy to attack the source of information that you don't like, then it's also a logical fallacy to give credence to the opinions that you do like based simply upon the source. Historical quotes come to mind often for me, but I simply forget the sources because they just don't matter. Because if the most evil person imaginable declared that the sky is blue, that is not what causes the sky to be blue. Truth is truth, even when the devil speaks it. And lies are lies, even when they come from someone you see as a moral and ethical person. If you've had a chance to look over the Voluntucky Oath, you may recognize ideas that are sourced from Ayn Rand, who's a statist and an atheist, whom I disagree with on many points, as well as Jesus Christ, whom I do not worship, and Thomas Jefferson, a politician who espoused a lot of great ideas, but often behaved in direct opposition to those ideas. But I will take wisdom from wherever I find it. And Jefferson, Rand, and Christ were chock full of wisdom. And I also find faults with each, as I'm sure you will find faults with the things that I say from time to time. In the end, you are your own bullshit filter. The idea of Voluntucky must stand on its own two feet. The fact that people are corruptible is the entire reason why I want Voluntucky to exist, to limit the amount of damage that any one person may be able to do. 
So the idea behind it must stand independent of the reputation of any of its members or even its founder. Because people can change. Principles cannot. If the idea doesn't stand alone, then we have a major point of vulnerability. If my reputation were ever soiled or even destroyed by things that I'm accused of, whether or not those things are true, that would only matter if the movement were about me, and it is certainly not. So any tarnishing of my personal reputation should be entirely irrelevant of the ability of Voluntuckians to continue on with or without me. No, I am not trying to foreshadow or preempt the revealing of some deep, dark secret from my past. But the power of media is nearly insurmountable. If they decide that you are their enemy, then there is little or nothing you can do about it. And if they cannot find evidence of corruption, they will invent it. It's done all the time. Knowing this makes it essential to the success of the project that the central focus remain on incorruptible principles. Those things cannot be fought. Any story that took 40 years and is summed up in less than an hour is going to have a lot of missing pieces. So I have tried to narrow them down to those particular points which I feel have been the key components in causing me to develop the point of view that I have. I guess if I were to begin at the beginning, then I would have to tell you about a particular part of my life that would not bow well at all for my personal credibility. I was a very imaginative child. So imaginative that it was difficult for me at times to distinguish reality from my imagination. But I will say that after age seven or so, I have not visually seen anything that other people couldn't see also. <laughs> yeah, like I said, imaginative, a little weird at times. Before that, there were more than a few instances of seeing things that weren't there. We lived in an old Victorian-style house built in the 1890s that had been converted into apartments. On no less than a half dozen occasions, I would see the fish from our fish tank swimming through the air in our apartment after they had died. I once woke up before daylight to see a black poodle dog lying at the foot of my bed staring at me as if completely frozen in time. It never moved and I was unable to move, paralyzed with fear for several minutes. It wasn't a scary looking dog, nor was anything about its appearance menacing at all. Just the fact that it was there and that it was frozen looking me directly in the eye was so terrifying that the thought of it haunts me to this day. On at least two occasions, it began to rain on a sunny day from no apparent cloud source and only directly on the two-foot-wide sidewalk that ran just a little right of center of our backyard from the house to the alley at the back of the lot. Not one raindrop was falling to the left or right of that sidewalk. And there you have, in a few sentences, what very well could have become the beginnings of a life of literal insanity. There were many other similar instances of seeing things that others did not see or probably wouldn't have seen if there was anyone else around. But I have deeply examined all of those instances that I've told you about just as well as the others, and 
I've concluded that all but the ones that I have told you about were obviously a brilliant imagination. It took me much longer to conclude that the ones that I just told you about were also imagination. This conclusion came only from development of my skill for critical thinking. I had to conclude that even seeing things with my own eyes did not qualify as evidence. The evidence that allows me to conclude that these events were entirely invented in my mind comes from rational thought and an understanding of empirical evidence. I guess it could be said that I was nearly forced into developing the skill of critical thinking at a very young age due to whatever this condition was because the alternative was a life where nothing would make sense. I didn't want to develop these skills as much as I needed to. In my mind at the time, these events were absolutely as real as the fact that I am sitting here recording this podcast right now. But this early age is where I really began to understand that believing something to be true is not what makes it true. My dad used to tell me, believe nothing you hear and only half of what you see. This was good advice. If you can question your own eyes, you can question anything. I remember being infatuated with the magician David Copperfield as a child in the 80s, and I just couldn't understand why my parents did not have the same level of awe at seeing his illusions that I had. And I'd be like, how did he do that? And they would just shrug and say, I don't know. It's like, how are you not just as amazed as I am? It was only in my adult life that I began to understand that not understanding how an illusion was created has nothing to do with whether or not you understand that it is an illusion. And when you understand that it is an illusion, then how the illusion was created becomes much less important. There was an age gap of 26 years between my parents. And my dad was past 50 years old when I was born. And I see that now as a huge benefit of getting my father's perspective, who was basically from two full generations before my own. We often visited my aunt, who lived on the 60-acre homestead in the same house my dad and his sisters grew up in. I remember him being in awe of the technology that existed in the 80s, which is understandable to me now, considering that his father had owned the first car in the county and neighbors came from miles around to look at it. <laughs> My father was a devout Christian, and he and I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. He studied his Bible almost every morning. My mom's position on the idea of Christianity was impossible to discern. She, she did not go to church, but she was highly supportive of my dad's mandate that I attend church with him. And she even sometimes referred to the teachings of the Christian belief as a way of discerning right from wrong. She smoked cigarettes and cursed, and my father did neither. From the stories told by family and friends, my dad's lifestyle was much more like my mother's up until I was a few months old, but with a lot more alcohol involved. My mom almost never drank after my dad drastically changed his lifestyle and stopped drinking completely. 
Long before I can remember, my much older half-brother from my dad's previous marriage was shot and killed in a local bar. This is when my dad began to lean heavily upon his Christian faith and did so until his death. As philosophically different as they were, they kept the marriage together for the next 25 years until my mom died from pancreatic cancer at 49 years old, eight years before my dad passed at 84. Looking back, I can see that their ability to keep the marriage together was largely due to the fact that they simply did not discuss those key philosophical topics on which they didn't agree. This was an incredible source of frustration for me due to my insatiable need to delve to the bottom of every issue. They did disagree quite often when I was very young, but their fights were always about money. Of course, I can see now that the money fights were only the symptom of their philosophical disagreements that they would not discuss. And I never said it to them, but there were many times that I wished they would just get a divorce and stop trying to force the marriage to work. Looking back, I'm sure I was a key part of their determination to make it work. I probably should have said something. All of their issues would seem on the surface to resolve eventually by finding ways to avoid confrontation. So the money issue was never really resolved. It was only abated when they also began to run their finances entirely separately. And then they could once again continue to comfortably avoid the uncomfortable discussions. Although I would describe the household I grew up in as almost entirely apolitical, my parents were both conservative. They both loved Ronald Reagan and hated Bill Clinton. <laughs> and they would give reasons based on the individual actions of each, but never on the underlying philosophy. I really think that was due to the fact that neither of them really understood the difference between the philosophies of liberals or conservatives. They knew what they liked and they knew what they didn't, but they didn't know why. Though I grew up as the only child in the house, my youngest half-sibling is about 11 years older than me. She never lived with us, and she was in college by the time I was in second grade. And my conservative parents, who funded half of her college education, watched that education turn her into an agnostic, bordering on atheist, with generally socialistic liberal beliefs. In hindsight, I believe I benefited from the unintended side effect of a college education never having been pushed on me for those reasons. If I had decided to go to college, I'm sure my parents would have supported me, but they were perfectly fine with my absence of that decision. I was never a great student. My parents heard a lot of Matt has great potential, but he just refuses to apply himself at the parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> I would go overboard on subjects that interested me and work ahead of the assignments, but the moment the topic lost my interest, no amount of coaxing could get my head back in the game. I spent 8th through 10th grade keeping close tabs on the bare minimum required to pass to the next grade seeing each ounce of effort past the minimum as a complete waste. In hindsight, it's a bit humorous to think of the extent of the detailed math that I did to calculate the bare minimum required to pass math class. <laughs> My junior year 
was passed by doing almost nothing until the final two months of the school year and then doing nothing else but making up missed work for those two months. There was no greater motivator for me than the very real possibility of having to repeat the 11th grade. But having seen what I was capable of, that motivation carried into my senior year. In the first half of the year, I completed all but the one and a half credits I needed to graduate. Then, feeling like I had it in the bag, I again did basically nothing for the remainder of the year. And for the first time in my public school education, I failed to meet the requirements for completion of a grade. Unfortunately, that grade was 12th grade. So I didn't get to graduate. My parents made me sign up for summer school, but the only reason I cared to graduate at all was so I could do the whole ceremonial thing. And since that was no longer a possibility, I couldn't give a rat's ass about summer school. So, of course, I blew off summer school and ultimately did not get a high school diploma at all. The rules at the time would have let me go back and repeat my senior year, but I was over 18 by then, and no one could make me. And as far as I was concerned, I was free at last, free at last. Praise God Almighty, free at last. I will say that much of my lack of interest in school came from the fact that 95% of everything I was doing in school just felt like a complete waste of time. I always found it much easier and felt much more productive when I was working and making money. At the age of 14, I began mowing our church lawn, which consisted of two residential-sized parsonage lots, the church lot, and a one-and-a-half-acre field behind the church, which allowed me to pocket around $400 a month. So, yeah, as a 14-year-old in 1991, I was kind of killing it financially. <laughs> After my dad driving me back and forth for a few weeks, I bought a moped and made the trip myself. All the mowing equipment was owned and kept at the church. After getting my first car at 16, I began delivering pizzas for a little mom-and-pop restaurant and went to making $800 to $1,000 a month tax-free. Under the table. No one else would hire for delivery unless you were 18. I would still mow yards, rake leaves, or shovel snow for extra cash. When my parents decided to start paying me $20 to mow our own yard, I outsourced the job to a friend for $15. <laughs> so I guess it could be said that I've always been a bit of an outlaw, though mostly in the gray market. It only took one week of working at Wendy's for $4.25 an hour and paying taxes out of what was only an $80 check to begin with to realize that this was a shitty way to go. I have seldom had any success in life by traveling the well-beaten path. My successes have always come from doing things differently. After I moved to Somerset, Kentucky a few months after high school for reasons that I will go into in a moment, I found that many of the jobs I wanted required either a high school diploma or a GED. So I went to the local community college and paid, I believe, $65 to take a GED test, which I passed easily with flying colors, no study at all. And all I could think about was that I could have quit school years ago and taken this test and wound up in the same exact position I was in now. What a waste of time school was. And I'll be honest, I still harbor much resentment at having been forced to go to school. Now, 
during my senior year back in Ohio, I began seeing a girl who I was not in love with and had already dumped once. Then we got back together. Then her parents told me I was not allowed to see her at all, which translated in my mind to dictating authority on, on the life and will of an individual, even though I couldn't have articulated it that way at that time. If she wanted to break up with me, that would have been a, a different story entirely, but I would not, could not allow anyone but her or myself to make that decision. Why I couldn't allow it, I didn't even understand at the time. It was all gut instinct in those days. But after we were caught seeing each other a couple more times, her parents filed some sort of court order barring us from contact. And my response was for us to jump in a car and drive from Ohio to southern Georgia. Since she was already on juvenile probation in Ohio, basically for being a rebel against her parents... I was charged with contributing to the unruliness of a minor. She was 17 at the time, seven months younger than I was. The judge sentenced me to one year in the Butler County Jail. I was there for 85 days before I was released, only after I agreed to leave town immediately. I was not allowed to return for two years. I wasn't even permitted to go home first before leaving town. My parents met me at the jail with a bunch of my stuff already loaded into my car. I had distant family in Somerset who let me stay at a small vacant house owned by my great aunt and uncle who were in a nursing home at the time. My parents soon joined me in Somerset, my dad having closed his business that he later reopened in Somerset and my mom transferring from a retail store she had been at for a long time. After living there for about a year, they bought a house just outside of town. I can't say that my life had much of a direction at all over the next couple years. Mowing yards always seemed like an excellent source of tax-free side cash, so I did a lot of that. But I also worked odd jobs through temp services and finally became a security guard at a local factory and at the local mall on weekends. I also spent a lot of time practicing martial arts. When I was a kid, I had spent two years in a jiu-jitsu class, finally achieved the second degree orange belt, whatever that means, and from third to ninth grade, I don't believe I let more than a month go by without getting into a fight. In grade school, it was every week. <laughs> Though I only had a couple fights in high school, I can honestly say that I loved physical combat. I was never a bully. To the contrary, I loved squashing bullies. But it seemed like bullies were not as easy to come by in the Bible Belt as they were in the Cincinnati area. So I joined the Somerset Karate Academy and eventually achieved the level of Green Belt in American-style Taekwondo. It was at that school that I met my next great love interest. And when she dumped me, I made a mistake like many make after such traumatic events when you realize that what you're doing isn't working long term and at the ripe old age of 21 I joined the U.S. Army and I regretted my decision almost immediately after getting to basic. First, despite very high scores on every test they gave me, 16 points shy of genius on the military equivalent of the IQ test, the jobs they would offer me were extremely limited because I only had that good enough diploma and not an actual high school diploma. 
and because I foolishly admitted to having smoked marijuana several dozen times. And having spent time in jail didn't bode well for their view of me either. So they almost didn't take me at all. But my test scores edged me over the top. So they graciously allowed me to choose between the jobs of mechanic, plumber, or infantryman. I chose infantryman. But 11B was most definitely not the life for me. <laughs> I survived the eight weeks of basic training and five weeks of advanced infantry training by the skin of my teeth. All the time motivated not nearly as much by the idea of patriotism or love of country as by the constantly repeated mantra that this would likely be the toughest part of my military career. And after this, it was all a breeze. After all, it was pre-9-11 and outside of some conflicts lasting a few weeks, the country had not been at war in nearly 40 years. Sadly, an environment my 16-year-old son has never known. But we were told again and again that life would be much easier once we got to our permanent duty stations. And for most people, that might have been true. For me, it was not. I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in the 101st Airborne Division, Charlie Company, 2nd of the 502nd. And outside of having a few more hours per week to do as I wished, basic training and AIT had just been a warm-up. The 25-mile road march that I barely eked through to graduate AIT was the mainstay at Fort Campbell every Friday. Our five-mile maximum every other day runs were now five-mile minimum runs every day. Those who did well were those with natural athletic talent for going the long haul and tremendous cardiovascular ability. I am not one of those people. I was built for quick, devastating bursts of energy. It's how I was designed and why I was good at martial arts. I had painstakingly acquired a substantial increase in my long-haul cardiovascular abilities, but had, in all honesty, maxed out my abilities just to graduate basic at AIT. I simply did not have what it took to keep up. But I did give it hell. The leaders could see that I was giving it hell, and as long as they could see that, their expectations were reasonable. Well, they were reasonable to all but one person, my squad leader. This man was born to bully. He relished in the failures of those in his command, all four of us. But he seemed especially to make me his personal pet project. If I met his demands, his demands would simply increase to a point beyond what I could achieve so he would have a reason to continue with his barrage of insults and deprecation. This man had 14 years in the military and had managed to achieve the rank of E-4 specialist. He had been a first sergeant at one time, but his behavior and attitude had made him many enemies. After many reductions in his pay grade, he had become quite the expert at learning how much of an asshole he could be and still avoid getting knocked down yet another rank. Chain of command either wouldn't or couldn't do much about the situation. So after only about six weeks at Fort Campbell, I went AWOL, which was not nearly as big of a deal as it is today. I just went home. They called me. They knew where I was at. No one came to get me. After being home for two weeks, my mom was a complete nervous wreck over the whole situation, and she was convinced I was going back to jail 
And she had lost over 40 pounds during the three months that I had been in jail in Ohio due simply to her nerves being shot and from the whole situation and lack of appetite. So mainly I went back for her. When I got back, the command finally saw fit to assign me to a different team and squad leader. I still had my usual problems keeping up to speed physically, but for that week I could handle continuing to give it my all. The following week, they put me back in with the old squad leader, the same shitbag as before, and a week after that, I left again, but not before coming within a hair's breadth of putting a bullet through the head of specialist shitbag. I was going to make it look like an accident. We were doing mops training, which is the process of clearing threats out of a building or residence. When it came time for live ammo practice and we were supposed to shoot the balloons stapled up in the corners, I made sure to get in line directly behind Specialist Shitbag. And when he went through the door first, my sights went directly at his head. And while everyone else filed into the left and right behind me, I stood in the middle of the room aiming at him. It only took maybe three or four seconds for everyone else to realize what was going on. This was not part of the plan. I had hesitated. I am just not naturally a killer. So no chance in hell of this looking like an accident now. After one very loud command to drop my weapon from the catwalk above where we were being observed, I seriously doubted that there would be a second command issued and the only one getting shot that day would have been me, so I dropped my weapon. But I have to admit that I enjoyed that brief moment of seeing Specialist Shitbag's eyes getting as big as baseballs. Somehow the incident was dropped immediately. I think a lot of the command understood my frustration. Maybe it was so brief that it was easy for them to pretend that it didn't happen at all. I don't know. But we all rode back to the barracks with no one saying a word to me. The next morning... I left a half an hour before 5 a.m. formation and headed for Somerset again. This time, I was determined not to go back. Sorry, Mom. After 30 days, the Army agreed to process me out if I came back. So I went back, and that's what they did, and so ended my nine-month military career. This whole process seriously fucked with my head for many years. I had equated the U.S. brand with all that was good in the world. While I was never born military or the law enforcement type, the indoctrination process that we've all been through was firmly rooted in my mind. They were right simply because they were government. Therefore, I must have been the one who was wrong. I saw this as an enormous failure on my part. It took many years to come to terms with the fact that I had come within moments of letting them turn me into a killer for reasons that I didn't even understand. And that the level of stress that I was put through was entirely unnecessary. That the attitude of everyone around me was of a bloodthirsty pit bull at the end of a chain, praying not for peace, but for their master to unleash them to destroy. And when that happened, the reason would not matter in the slightest. And most of the time, when I was part of that scene, that was my attitude as well. Relishing the thought of committing sanctioned murder.
There aren't many parts of my life that I am ashamed of, but that is one. I, I used to be ashamed of not fulfilling the duties that I had obligated myself to do. Now, I am ashamed of the extent to which I did. Which means I am proud of the fact that I didn't. I'm glad I quit. And that I can live with. So, there you have the first half of my life thus far. That went a little bit longer than I thought it would, so... I considered breaking this up into two episodes, but I don't think I will since this particular topic just won't be of any interest to some people. So let's just knock it out in one show. My life up to this point is where almost all of my predisposition for liberty and reasoning comes from, so the next 20 years can be covered more briefly. I spent the next couple years working for my dad in his used furniture and appliance store as well as other odd jobs. And and being the lead singer for a local garage band. The first time I met my wife was during my first AWOL. I was hanging out at my dad's store and she came in looking for furniture because she was breaking up with a guy she had been with for a couple years and moving out and needed to set up house. She was dealing mainly with one of my dad's other employees so I don't remember much about this meeting other than thinking she was smoking hot. <laughs> and I still think that. Not just because of a deeper love that has grown through the years, but because she is still actually smoking hot. No kidding. I kind of hit the lotto in the wife department. The second time I met her was a few weeks later, after my illustrious military career had ended, when she came back into the store and saw my shiny new Suzuki Intruder motorcycle sitting out front. She asked me whose bike it was. I said mine, and she informed me that I would be taking her for a ride. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will. <laughs> Fast forward about 15 months, and we're married. Fast forward another 24 months, and my mom dies of cancer. Fast forward another three months, and my only son is born. Somewhere among all this was the start of my first actual career in sales, the purchase of my home, and the September 11th terrorist attacks. You could say life was moving at a breakneck pace. A lot of changes in a very short time. And when life moves fast, life gets expensive. But remember earlier when I was talking about my parents' disagreements about money? Well, undenounced to me, when my mom found out about her cancer and that her odds were not good, she had planned to leave everything she had to me and nothing to my dad. And it would have been a pretty simple process since they had been running all of their finances separate for years. She told my wife about this plan. Now, for some reason, my mom would talk to my wife about things she would never even consider talking to me about and would certainly never talk to my dad about. And my wife told her that if she did this, she would create a rift between me and my dad, and she was right. I certainly wouldn't have given it to him, and he would have expected it. My dad wasn't even very happy with her decision to leave me half. She believed my dad would just blow through anything she left him and have nothing left to show for it. Why she thought I would behave any differently, I have no idea. Fast forward two more years, and my dad and I have both gone through our share of a heavy five-figure inheritance, and now we're both broke. And I beat him there, but not by much. 
There were no alcohol or drug or gambling addictions. We both worked long hours, even when my dad well into his 70s at this point. We had both just simply lived beyond our means consistently and gotten very used to spending without worrying about silly account balances until the money was all gone. But for all of our ineptitudes with money, neither of us were ever lacking in work ethic. The value of hard work was a continuous theme in our house when I was growing up. Dad thoroughly enjoyed working no matter what he was doing. Mainly because if he didn't like doing it, he simply wouldn't. (laughs) I inherited this. I absolutely love the feeling of being productive and bringing creation into the world. And if I don't feel like I'm doing that, I find it impossible to force myself to continue in a job. It's basically just a high level evaluation of my personal time and energy. And if good pay is not immediately available, then I will simply work my ass off for no pay to find or to create the work that is worth my time. But it can be easy to ignore low pay if you enjoy what you're doing and always seem to have money in the bank, even if that money didn't come from the work that you're doing. So only when I was getting dangerously close to running out of money did I start to reevaluate my sales job. When it obviously wasn't going to keep me going, I found a different job that paid a little more, but it wasn't enough. I finally began to reduce my spending for the first time, which slowed the hemorrhage, but I had already obligated myself to too much debt. And the debt was what did me in. We started getting a little behind, then a lot, and then we were fighting off the repo men. I finally gave up on finding the right J-O-B. With my limited skill set, working for someone else wasn't going to pay me what I needed to catch up. I had to work for myself. So I got on my home computer and printer and printed up 1,460 half-sheet flyers for bluegrass lawn mowing. I don't know why that number stuck in my head all these years. But but it literally took days to do on that slow-ass printer. I went door-to-door handing them out, tucking them in screen doors and behind mailbox flags, and soon I had 50 regular mowing customers on my schedule, as well as any one-time jobs that I could get. Mowing lawns has always been my go-to in the past for quick cash, and I knew it could make money, and I was right. And it worked. And I started making all my payments on time and gradually catching up on my past due bills, and I finally did catch up completely. In October of 2004, and then it started getting cooler, and the grass stopped growing as fast, and I hadn't much more than gotten caught up with all my bills, then I started getting behind again. Well, I hear you can make good money driving a truck. I had always enjoyed driving. I loved delivering pizzas, and my sales job had me driving all day every day, and I couldn't stand any job that had me spending all day inside one building. Shit, let's go be a truck driver. Well, long story short, all those companies that say they'll train you, they mean they'll train you after you've already gone to school and gotten your CDL. Because as I soon learned, having a CDL does not make you a truck driver. So I found a local CDL school that was foolish enough to loan me the $5,000 for tuition. Yeah, 
they loaned me five grand while I was behind at least a month on like four different bills. So they're out of business now. Surprise. <laughs> Imagine that. But before they went out of business, I finished the one month school, got my CDL, and I went to work making a whopping 14 cents a mile. The other thing those ads don't tell you is that the pay they advertise starts after your one month training phase. And before, it's about half that. And it took the company that I signed on to a month to get me a trainer. By January, I was way behind on all my bills and debts again and had no idea if the lights would be on each time I got home to my house with all electric heat in January. We were going to food banks for food and... Feeling desperate to get the wolves away from the door, I filed Chapter 13 bankruptcy two weeks after starting my new career. But with a little experience under my belt and a recommendation from a friend, I found a much better paying job in April of 05 and soon began the process of catching up once again. There were many emotional lows through this time of my life. I had always believed that being willing to work hard was the entire picture for how to be successful and if you weren't successful it could only be because you were lazy well I wasn't lazy but I wasn't successful either something was amiss I actually considered trying to find ways to steal during this time since the need for a strong work ethic was obviously bullshit because my work ethic had gotten me nowhere then the only thing that would work was to take it from someone who had it. I was really settling in to this way of thinking. And what made it worse was the thought that if work ethic didn't matter, and the only way to have anything was to steal it, then that meant that the only people it was available to steal from had also stolen it. This was my reasoning. Of course, that reasoning was highly flawed and short-sighted and the logic falls apart if you carry it out to its furthest conclusion. The questions that I should have been led to from there were, what is the original source of money? Why does money even have any value to begin with? For that matter, what the hell is money? Not only did I not have the answer to these questions, but I had never even thought to ask them. Thank you, government school. And absent of any other outside wisdom, I almost definitely would have began stealing. I was already well into the planning stages, but I wasn't going to risk getting locked up for some small-time score. If I was going to take the risk, it was going to be for a score worth the risk of getting locked up for. Fortunately, I was working other angles at the same time. Once in jail was enough for me, but I was very close to being willing to risk that again. I dread to think of who I may have become if I had gone to college and this belief that I had had that the little man just can't get ahead had been reinforced with socialist doctrine. It was difficult enough to overcome the indoctrination that I had received. So I understand why the status believes the things that they do. It's an easy sell. It's also why I understand how enormous and likely insurmountable the task is of changing people's minds and hold no hope for that 
ever happening on a large enough scale to make a difference in the way things are currently done. The solution is to create an alternative to the old ways and then eventually abandon them entirely. A few months into my truck driving career in 2005, I was caught up on my bills, including my bankruptcy payments and my newly acquired CDL school debt. So I bought an XM satellite radio, and that is where I discovered this guy named Dave Ramsey. Our stories were similar, but his mistakes had a lot more zeros on the end than mine did. He had been a millionaire by the age of 26 and lost it all. So he set out to find what he did wrong. He began talking to old wealthy people who had been wealthy for a long time. And he found out that the biggest secret is that there is no secret. In fact, the process of becoming wealthy is usually boring as hell. It's just doing what works on a small scale over and over again for years and years. The flaw in Dave's philosophy that took me years to discover was that all of those old rich people that he had talked to had decent incomes from which to save and invest. And if you do not have a decent income, then your first step is to develop one. Otherwise, Dave's plan just doesn't work for building wealth. Without that reasonably high income, his boring plan of getting out of debt and then doing low-risk things over a long period of time only serves to create wealth which you will never get to enjoy. Because by the time you have enough to be a real player, you are well past your years of having the ability to play. His step-by-step -step process is excellent for figuring out how to do the best you can with what you have to a certain point. I followed that plan and became debt-free in November of 2007, and I still do not borrow money. I still understand that the borrower is slave to the lender. I have risked and lost many thousands of dollars on business ideas that fell apart, but I survived all of them because I didn't risk more than I had on hand and could afford to lose. The only serious money I have made was in the cryptocurrency bubble of 2017 a plan Dave would not have approved of. Dave's show lasted three hours per day. I also listened to a lot of music and comedy and many, many hours of political talk. Since, even in my late 20s, I had basically no understanding of the differences between conservative and liberal ideas, I would listen to the multitude of conservative talk shows but I would also listen to the liberal ones, which were harder to find, but did exist on satellite radio. And when I was listening to the conservative talk shows, I hated those socialist slacker liberals who only wanted something for nothing. But when I was listening to the liberal talk shows, I hated those greedy, self-absorbed elitists who only took from the hardworking people who were the ones making them wealthy. In fact, it took me a while to even realize that these two points of view were opposing one another. They all seemed to make sense while I was listening to them. It wasn't until one of the liberal shows started naming names of conservative hosts and I said, hey, wait a minute, I like that guy. Soon after, I realized that these were the two political sides that all the hubbub was about. 
And since the only acceptable dichotomy meant that one had to be wrong and the other had to be right, I went with the one that seemed the most right. It was the conservatives who taught me the true meaning of liberty and that it's wrong for government to decide what's best for me. They were the ones who taught me about Adam Smith and Milton Friedman and all the logical flaws of Keynesian economics. And I spent many years becoming very adept at the mental gymnastics required to believe that the world could be fixed if only we had the right people in positions of power. I told myself that government could be moral if we the people held it accountable. I did not grow to hate government. I grew to love liberty. In fact, I became head over heels in love with liberty. But rather than that leading me to become less politically involved, it led me to become more politically involved. I literally had the Washington, D.C. switchboard on speed dial. I organized the Tea Party movement in Somerset and led three rallies. I drove SUV loads of elderly people to the polls on election day. And it was only after years of wasted effort that I came to understand that even when I won, I lost. Politicians never did what they said they were going to do. I watched people who I thought were highly principled abandon those principles when the politician that they supported did the same. They were just as enamored with the shiny white teeth and the cult of personality as the other guys whom they claimed were such blind ideologues who were following like sheep. They were just sheep following a different shepherd. It became obvious to me that the master-servant relationship with the people being the controllers of government was not only lost, but was lost with no hope whatsoever of returning. The great American experiment had failed. I spent the next couple of years claiming no party whatsoever. I had heard of the Libertarian Party and knew that they had a platform that was most in line with my values. But I also knew what it felt like to work your ass off for something only to have it fail. And I knew they stood no chance of winning anything anytime soon beyond positions that didn't really matter. I have completely different reasons now for not being part of it. But at the time, it was just out of exhaustion of the whole political process. I have come to see that the invaluable part of driving a truck for a living is the time I spend listening to nothing at all. Buddha spent seven years under a tree in silent meditation. I have spent 14 years behind the wheel of a truck and at least half of that time I drive in silence with nothing in my mind but my own thoughts. So I figure he and I have about the same amount of meditation time. I have always been very comfortable alone. I enjoy the company of others, but too much of it leaves me feeling claustrophobic. Other people and influences are excellent sources for something to think about, but they are seldom the providers of answers to the most fundamental questions of life. Other people add the clay. I remove the unnecessary parts of the clay to reveal the sculpture underneath. Developing a rock-solid philosophy is not a process of addition. It is a process of subtraction. Behind the wheel is where I came to understand that morality is truly objective. 
that it is not decided. It is discovered. It is where I began to see the flaws in so many of the ideas I had been taught. These thoughts are abundant in my conversation, which is off-putting to most people. But I had one friend who would listen and even interject from time to time when I would let him get a word in edgewise. He was another truck driver whom I had known since I first moved to Somerset when we were both teenagers. Over the years, we would spend hours on the phone while driving, especially after Bluetooth came along. He kept asking me if I had heard of the Survival Podcast. At the time, I had barely even heard of podcasting. But he kept saying, you sound just like Jack Spearco. So I finally looked up this Spearco guy and the Survival Podcast. I chose episode 1567, mainly for the title, On Being a Sovereign Human. This was the first time I had heard anyone else reiterate all of these ideas back to me that had been bouncing around in my head for years. It was also the first time I had heard those ideas described as anarchy, and the first time I had ever heard the terms voluntarist or anarcho-capitalist. But most important for me was the fact that here was someone whom I had never spoken with or exchanged ideas, but we had drawn the same conclusions, which lends highly to the notion that I was not, in fact, insane. It was provable. (laughs) I did not come to believe these things because Jack said them. He didn't lead me down that road. It was like I had been walking alone for years on a path that I had assumed no one else was on. Then I look up one day and here's a guy walking beside me. It was like two people on different continents having discovered the same mathematical formula. This cannot happen through propaganda. It cannot happen through any idea or dogma that any person has ever invented. It can only happen through simple discovery of the truth and what has always been there all along. Subtraction, not addition. At that point, I had always thought of anyone who spends time on social media doing anything besides sharing pictures of their grandkids or promoting a business as somewhat pathetic. Like they were all fat, sweaty, neck-bearded basement dwellers who knew nothing of the real world but seemed to have an opinion about everything, and I had no desire at all to hear the opinions of people who had never actually done anything with their lives. And I wasn't entirely wrong. No doubt those people do actually exist in droves. But it was this point of view that kept me entirely off social media. But I failed to see the benefits of wading through those people to find the others who do see the world as I do. When your point of view is such an infinitesimally small percentage of the population, it can be easy to assume that those other people don't even exist at all. It is incredibly lonely. I guess if I have Jack Spearco to thank for anything, it would be search terms. I simply didn't know what to call the things I believed in before listening to him. Those search terms allowed me to find a multitude of people who believe what I believe or very similar and who, more importantly, are willing to hold each other's feet to the fire and question our beliefs. This has refined my point of view immensely. I have changed many minds and had my mind changed many times. 
It's amazing how quickly that happens when your discussions are with others who desperately want to understand the truth just as badly as you and are willing to abandon any wrong ideas they have had, no matter how long they have held them. The recent purges that have taken place on Facebook and other social media were the real inspiration for me to get this podcast up and going. Not out of desperation, because I see our platforms of communication disappearing. I mean, it's the internet. When you chop off the head of one beast, it sprouts three more. But because the very fact that they saw the purges as necessary means that we have become a significant voice that they can no longer ignore. The lion does not turn around when the small dog barks. But the lion turned around. This is clear evidence to me that we are no longer the small dog. We are now a reasonable threat. It is very encouraging. But I don't know if it's because our numbers are growing or because we as individuals are getting louder. In either case, we are still an incredibly small percentage. If our numbers are growing, it is not at a rate that can create any changes in the current system within our lifetimes. I could be wrong, but if I'm not, I'm not willing to wait and see what happens. I'm going to make things happen. So that takes my story up to the current day and the creation of Voluntucky, the podcast and the project. If you would like to be part of creating a voluntarist world in your lifetime, you can contribute for the purpose of real estate acquisition in Pulaski County, Kentucky. When there is enough in the coffers to pay for real estate in full that can be rented out to Voluntucky community members who have moved to Pulaski County, that rent can be paid with our local cryptocurrency coins that you will receive 10,000 of for moving as part of the Voluntucky project. If you choose not to rent from me, you will still get the coins. But this all starts with your adoption of the Voluntucky Community Charter. And that is available on the website. And with that, I will sign off for the day. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Voluntucky, the podcast that is all about creating a voluntarist world in Kentucky. I'm Matt Withrow. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you.